0: I love how all girls move them body And when you move your body you going to move it nice and sweet and sexy All right? over on your I know you don't
1: Backdrop to the Fergus McCann takeover probably started um, in season 1990, and I remember it was Not The View who had a cartoon, it was the first Not The View of the season, and it had Celtic Park with a kind of cracked wall, and then it had Billy McNeil coming in and paper all over the cracks, and then the next bit was the cracks coming away again, um, with an awful start to the season, and the Rumblings were there, first really exacerbated by a meeting in the SECC in 1991, which was initially about season tickets, back then the away tickets went to um, majority supporters clubs, that's just how it was. The club, and its wisdom, decided that season ticket holders should take priority over supporters clubs. Now, at the time, the club had about 7,000 season ticket holders. So there was uproar. And uh, the association and affiliation organised this meeting at the SECC. And there was literally about 10 minutes about that before it became a shouting, slanging match about the state of the club. Brian Dempsey was there and I can distinctly remember, whatever you think of Brian Dempsey, he said, the only way you will get rid of this board is to starve them out. That's the only way. Now, the notion telling Celtic supporters, you do not go to matches, you do not buy strips, etc., was absolutely for the birds. It was just never going to happen then. Then there was um, the Save Ourselves, organised by a guy called Willie Wilson, who organised a meeting in Shettleston Town Hall, which Jim Craig spoke at, at. and uh, the only thing I would have to say in criticism of it is, it was by invitation only, you don't invite people to a revolution, they just revolt. So. The rumblings kept going until... And then there was people um who expressed an interest in buying a club. But the old board just were not interested. They just, you know, they had a great life because the Celtic they funded their lifestyles. They had power, they had, you know, fame, they had all that kind of stuff. They really weren't interested. And then, and then they kept making these moves which um, they thought would kind of stabilise things, but it really was a sticking plaster over a bullet hole, none more so than Chief Executive Terry Cassidy, uh, a smug, arrogant clown who, you know, masterminded, in brackets, the Campus Lang project, which was a disaster start to finish, and literally fell apart about six hours after announcing it, in terms of the funding and, you know, all all these names and companies that were getting mentioned, it was all utter nonsense. And the club was pushing itself towards the brink. In step Banky Scotland, who, of course, as we now know, were partly controlled by... David Murray. And David Murray and cohorts were pushing to basically bankrupt Celtic and to give us the humiliation of at least administration and possibly liquidation. The Sunday Mail had then drove a hearse up Kerrydale Street and put the headline of Celtic RIP. There was now a boycott organised by Celts for Change and really the only hope in all this was a wee guy from Croy who'd emigrated for Canada had came over to Celtic in 93 with a plan had published the plan told us what the stadium would look like told us what their share issue and told us he would leave within five years and that man was Fergus McCann
2: Right, Paul, as usual, hope this one finds you well. So, the Fergus McCann takeover. Early 90s, the atmosphere around about Celtic Park was toxic towards the board. I remember the the protests at the, I think it was Dundee at home, with a support the team sacked the board banner on the Rangers end. Uh, I was was the really one for a match programme always bought the fanzines and I remember not the views started rumblings against the board maybe 89 early 1990 Uh, really not really started the ball rolling but you got a feeling that the the grassroots of the support was not overly enamoured with what the board were doing their ambitions their the biscuit tin mentality whereas the forces of darkness over the river were spending millions bringing in top tier players for England and elsewhere. So around right about that time it was Celtic fans were pretty underwhelmed with the support the board were getting managers and really it was, we didn't understand that behind the scenes that The Huns were cheating, really, with money they didn't have. As your expose and Armageddon, uh, the goings on at Charlotte Square with Royal Bank of Scotland, Bank of Scotland, getting loans out willy-nilly and Gavin Masterton. Uh, So David Murray never actually spent a penny of his own money to put into Rangers. It was all taxpayer-funded in the end. But I suppose... Going back to Fergus's takeover. It really ramped up. I remember run about late ninety-three when the Save Ourselves campaign really kicked off and it was a a case of having to choose sides really whether to put faith in the board to had proved less than able to take a club besides the Celtic forward with our small-time family mentality, the Kellys, the Whites and the Grants. I remember that idiot Terry Cassidy and his pie-in-the-sky ideas for Cambus Lang that was never going to get off the ground on a a toxic waste site at the old old Hoover factory. So it was never, ever going to harm I remember the atmosphere at the Rangers game. They beat us 4-2. They went 2 and up early doors and things were looking bleak. We got one back and then they went 3-1 up. They went 4-1 up and then things really hit the fan then. I remember the, the headline was Derek Johnson got hot in the face with a Mars bar. Good enough for the fat biased bastard anyway, but... Uh, That atmosphere at Celtic Park showed that it was only really a matter of time before they had to go. I remember at the time I was working on London Underground, obviously in London, and the headline news when the takeover was finally announced uh, was all over BBC, ITV news down there. Uh, It was the headline on BBC Breakfast Live reports for Celtic Park. Delighted fans all over the shop. And everybody has a problem with Fergus, with what happened with Tommy Burns and everything. But the wee guy did exactly what he said on the tin. He was coming in to make a profit. He was going to build us a stadium and do exactly what he said he was going to do. He was going to win, win the title back. He done that under Vim. So... I've not really got any problems with Fergus McCann, apart from he's a capitalist bastard, but that's another story. After a takeover, there was a a feeling of blatant optimism. We thought the good times are back. He brought Tommy Burns in and got Riddy Macari, who'd refused to move up and live in Scotland, which is a prerequisite as a Celtic manager. So it was never going to work with Macari. Plus, his ambition, his signings, two British soldiers, Justin Whittle and the guy, Gary Holt, two signings for the British Army. That was never going to work at Celtic either. So getting Macari out and getting Tommy Burns in, he brought in, obviously Macari was a Celtic man, but he'd done the Frank Boff down to England as soon as he could. So somebody like Tommy Burns had gave his life to the club, bringing him back, getting a real Celtic man in in charge, was obviously getting the fans on board. He put in place the season tickets, the share offer that Celtic fans bought into, the biggest share offering in British football history, took up by the fans. The only downside of that was he also let Dermot Desmond down the building. Although he's a billionaire, he's, we're nothing but a hobby horse to him. And the guy with 35% of holding in the club is the major shareholder. He is the biggest single shareholder, but he's not the majority shareholder. The fans are. And if the fans all go together, they would be able to vote on a block to, to put paid to his ambitions and put the club on the right track. But they never, ever do that. Still... After the takeover, blatant optimism, and then it led to the stop in the ten. So, all in all, a successful, successful takeover in that regard. And the fact that Fergus built as a sixty thousand seater stadium in the following years has led to his overtaking the forces of darkness. Having an unbuilt financial. Superiority of them uh, because of the extra 10,000 seats we've got, extra season ticket holders, uh, futures Rosie, futures Celtic, Hale help. all the best Paul.
3: The battle for control of Celtic Football Club appears to be over. A board meeting has been going on all day to decide the club's future. A Canadian millionaire, Fergus McCann, and a Scottish businessman, Brian Dempsey, have pledged new money for Celtic, which has been on the edge of receivership. Mr. McCann's expected to be appointed chief executive. The Celtic fans celebrating the appointment of a new board at their Parkhead Stadium tonight. After talks which lasted all day, the man who had saved Celtic from the receivers by stumping up a million pounds to pay off some of the club's many creditors said the final details of the takeover were being clarified by lawyers. It's a matter of the the lawyers sorting certain technicalities out between them. If you want to stay on, can I ask you to have patience, be helpful to the police, remember what we're here for, and we'll be out very, very shortly, I hope with the best possible news, so please... It's understood, the deputy chairman, David Smith, has agreed to resign, along with two fellow directors, and they'll sell their controlling chairs to other board members. The Canadian tycoon, Fergus McCann, who arrived at the club this afternoon, will be appointed chief executive after a meeting of the new board next week. For more than a year, fans, disgruntled at the lack of success on the field and the financial chaos of it, have been calling for the ball's resignation and have boycotted games. It's a far cry from the glory days of 1967, when the Lisbon Lions' defeat of Inter Milan brought the European Cup to Britain for the first time. But since winning the league and cup double in 1988, success has been in short supply, as their bitter old firm rivals have gone from strength to strength. The takeover brings to an end a long and at times farcical battle for control of one of Britain's most famous clubs. The tough task now for the new board is to restore Celtic to its former glory. Andrew Castle, BBC News, Parkhead.
1: I am an outlier. I try to make actions speak louder than words. Um, People will often describe me as militant. I always say I've only got about really seven real friends Um, I am a very Marmite person because I get under the skinny people and so as a 19 year old to start boycotting uh, Celtic games for me was a no-brainer and that's exactly what I did um, in season 1993-1994. I made a personal choice not to renew my season ticket, which was for the, the, the Terrison, And I just had given up hope of there ever being any kind of real Celtic competitiveness and challenge as long as the the old board remained in place. And I mean the writing was on the wall, uh start of season ninety three. We had some terrible games. I remember losing 3-2 to Hibs at Celtic Park, which came around um, less frequent than Haley's Comet. Um, and it got worse and worse. And then, of course, we went to St Johnston in a midweek game and got beat 2-1. The Huns actually lost 2-1 at home in Wurrowell that night as well. If I remember serves, I think it was Dougie that scored both goals. And... Um, after that, it was just poison, and you knew Liam Brady had to go, but you also knew the problems were far bigger than the team being crap. Um, there was nothing. There was no strategy. There was no vision. There was we weren't going anywhere, and um, something had to change. And so when we played Dundee on the Saturday, it was toxic atmosphere. It was just continual chanting of sack the board. Um, and, you know, it just something to give. But, of course, in any situation like this, and especially with Celtic, it's not a universal thing, you know, where everybody's like, ah, oh, the board must go. Matter of fact, my uncle Francie was in favour of the board because his kind of remem- remembrance and, and, and connection to the Kellys. It was like, oh, but they're, you know, descendants of Robert Kelly, therefore great. No. um, People, the board had started calling people who wanted them out malcontents. malcontents. Um, it was one of the reasons why they didn't want to have any season ticket holders in the terracing because they thought that it meant people thought they had a right to... Um for more basically and have a say and so it was just it was just awful and I, you know I was drinking a lot at the time a local pub the Gunner, and it was like almost a daily occurrence I'd be in there and I'd be getting slacked, because it was just crisis after crisis and crack crest after crack crest and they were you, and you know they brought in Lou Macarry as manager who refused to move up for Stoke um, see on television that if David Murray offered him a million pounds, he would take it. Uh, play the style of football that was eye bleeding, same players that were never ever going to be good enough to play for Celtic, even when we were that bad. And generally, just things went bad to worse culminating in the you know the at game, New Year, which was me and my friend Michael Shields. The first game we went, the first home game we went to that season, we went to all the other away games, because um, as I say, our boycott basically meant that we went through, went to the car park, shouted abuse at the board, game kicked off, we went to the Oak Bar, and sat there being very miserable, it has to be said. Uh, it was just torture. And, um, but we thought we had to support the team in that sense. Well, we were two now doing it after two minutes, and then it was just mayhem. Our first league win, our first win of any kind of that for that back because we were out the first round of the Scottish Cup um, at Motherwell was against Hearts in mid-February. You know, just imagine that. So things were getting worse and worse. And then there was the official boycott game, which was against Kilmarnock at home, which, by the way, a lot of people still went to. Like, see guys, like, are you ever going to get this, you know? it's a penny ever going to drop, but I find there's a sizable amount of the sales support who never, ever, ever want to rock the boat about anything. Um, so, Sales for Change had organised the boycott, and, um, you know, they were kind of to the forefront of the campaign to get the board out. I attended numerous meetings in Glasgow and Edinburgh, um, and really, you know, they were the sort of hope, probably along with not the view, you know, whereas it was just the Celtic view was like fully these hats off to the board type letters and the letters page and stuff like that. Um, so the boycott went ahead and there was a foot on the pitch at Celtic Park that night. Celtic beat command at 1-0 with a John Collins goal. I was near there, I was in the oak bar again. And the board announced that the crowd was over 10,000, which apparently was utter rubbish. The Sales for Change campaign had counters and they basically reckoned that other than the Kilmarnock fans who were there, which was quite a substantial amount by the way, considering these days, there was very, very few people that actually paid into the game. and But I was despondent because nothing changed that day. Some fans, the affiliation even, had suggested a... Uh, a walk out on sixty minutes and it was kinda like what's the point in that you just give them the money anyway, you know? So that was a Tuesday night, Wednesday nothing, and then Thursday um I distinctly remember being in the gunner and a news flash came on that the Celtic board had quit. And it was one of them where, did you see that? Did you see that? Did you see that? What You know, communication not being what it was kind of thing. Um, And so on the Friday I went through to Celtic Park for about four o'clock, I think. Horrible, horrible day. Pushing, rain, freezing. And um, people were inside the building, outside, inside, outside. Nobody really knew what was going on. Mark McGlone came out a couple of times, things like that. And then, of course... I was literally about to leave when Brian Dempsey came out and said, the game is over, the Rebels have won, and everybody went absolutely ballistic. And I remember going up to St Johnston um, the following day, and it was like a fucking weight off your shoulders. You know, uh, Fergus was there, and um, Paul Burns scored in the first couple of minutes, and just brilliant, you know. And then back to Celtic Park, um, where again the crowd was giving it about 40,000 or something, but it was probably there, because everybody came back, and we got Bielfee Motherwell that day again, but you had the feeling that the wheels were in motion, and they were in motion because of Fergus McCann. Fergus McCann, it has to be said, put his money where his mouth is. Um, John Keane put a million pound in to the Bank of Scotland when the Bank of Scotland was going to pull the plug through, I think, bigotry. um, And then Fergus launched £4 million and had to wire it for Canada. But what was important was that it stopped Celtic for going into administration. That was important because in the latter-day context we see what happened with AIM and all that kind of stuff that uh, it would have been far easier um, to go into administration. But as Fergus said, we paid all the bills.
4: So, Fergus McCann, before he took over at Celtic, um, he actually visited Stirling, where he went to high school, where indeed his father was the, was the rector of uh, Modens High School. And in the summer that he made his bid and made his uh, move to save Celtic, as we all know now, he visited the school on the very last day of the Um, very last day of the school and indeed the first day next day was the school holidays which would have been six weeks to eight weeks of holiday. So long story short he arrived unannounced and my good friend who was a rector John Oates became um, aware that someone was in the school grounds in a big fancy car. So he went out to meet him and they got chatting, and he explained who he was. And he said, "Look, I'm actually going on holiday in the next few days." And he went um, and showed him round the school as it was now, because it was very much different to what it was like when his dad was a rector and when he was indeed at school. So during the the, the hour or so that he was there, he then went into the office with John for a cup of tea and a goodbye and a thank you. And he quizzed him on why he was here and he explained that it was something to do with Celtic. And John, being a big Celtic supporter, said, oh, well, good luck. We're really in a mess. We need all the help we can get. And Fergus McCann gets up and he looks over at a photograph. Now, John Oates and Brian Quinn were best friends from as far as I know from three to four years old and right up until at that age when they were both um quite quite well on in age and when Fergus McCann saw him he recognized him as the chairman of the Bank of England who had just recently retired when he asked John he says how do you know this man he said well he's my best friend he said we're going on holiday together he said, is there any possibility that we could get him in a room? I I, I believe he would be an amazing chairman at Celtic if I get my um, if I get my bids accepted. He's certainly someone that as a person of interest that I would want to be involved with. Um and I'm sure as a Celtic fan he would want to be involved. And John made sure that, that happened. Now that is history beyond um you know, beyond the papers, it's it's, uh, it's a story that with the sliding doors effect that it had John maybe left a wee bit earlier, maybe you know they wouldn't have got Brian Quinn who was hugely successful as chairman. Um, but it happened as part of the Celtic folklore, and that's a story that I love to regale uh, time to time. Uh, what a man! What a man! Uh, both John Bracken and the Bonnet, Fergus McCann, saviour of us all. Photos everywhere
3: tonight. is simply this: <laughs> the game, the game is over. The rebels have won. Yeah!
1: I need to throw some asteriskiers type context in here. So perception at the time was Kelly's Whites and Grants, all thieves, stealing our money, fund their lifestyles and disintegrate the club. David Murray, King Midas, everything he touches, etc, 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 you know, bankrolling the Huns to their inevitable European Cup success. That was a perception in Scotland, 100%. Whilst in digging for the asterisk years, and that took a lot of um, turning over pages that had never been turned over before, um, was that the first thing that struck me more than anything was the Bank of Scotland were trying to shut us down for about 7 million quid. At the same time, Rangers owed them 30 million quid. That blew my mind, you know, because the context of that is very simple. That You know, everything we were seeing at Rangers was a house of cards. It was fairy dust. And whilst, for me, the old board were completely out of their depth, had lost sight and weren't qualified to push Celtic into the modern era, Let's look at some other things like that. They didn't retain information. And what I mean by that is, if you bought something, out of the tiny fucking Celtic shop at the time, you never got your details retained or anything like that. Or if you bought a ticket or anything, there was no mail outs or anything like that. One of the first things Fergus did when he came in was and in- sort of interpret a new computer system into the club that would retain data, um, you know. We're sort of at the advent of the internet at this point, um, and build build up a database, start maximizing the North American sales supporters in particular, and go over and, you know, which would lead to a shareholder um, sort of. Campaign, shareholder campaign that ultimately led to over ten it was oversubscribed, over 10,000 people bought shares and gave 14 million to the club in January 95. Now, you've got to remember at that time, now it's 94, I'm 20, uh, I've not got a lot of dough, I don't know a fucking thing about shares, and I'm just like, what? And people are saying to me, are you buying shares? I'm like, fucking buying shares? Of course I'm not buying shares, £600. I had never had £600 in my life at that point. Never. But I had started working as a scaffolders labourer at the time. And so I basically was in a pub one night We a fellow Celtic supporter. I know this sounds a bit convoluted, but I'm trying to remember back, for honesty. I never research anything when I do these pods. It's all comes for my immense brain. <laughs> and... Um, he just said to me, well, as far as I'm concerned, it's me giving Celtic £600 to beat the Huns. Sold. I signed up for it the next again day. And that shareholding was absolutely incredible because that funded the club's return to prominence in Scotland. And, you know, first thing was, we need to get the stadium gone. Now, remember, context again, we had to pay a million pounds to rent Hamden for a season at a time when the club was on its knees. We were also told, in non certain terms, there was to be no Irish paraphernalia flown at Hamden. They didn't want to tricolour over Hamden. And we had to bite the bullet on that. But Fergus plays a long game and he remembered Jim Farry, as we've said in previous podcasts the Hamden season in itself was absolutely woeful you know you used to stand beside your pals at games now you were all sitting you were all season ticket holders I think they sold 18,000 season tickets the first season there was no atmosphere nobody knew where to go to sing all that kind of stuff you know, you already know how far away you are for the pitch at Hamden, And it was awful. And our form suffered as well. Players just didn't turn up. Simon Donnelly, who'd been a sensation when he came through, never scored a goal that season. And yet, we only have his best season for Celtic the following year. So, it was just all these things swirling about. The Huns came to Hamden, gubbed us 3-1. Brian Loudrup tore Barry Smith apart. And they were such triumphant and, and, and just in your face. I remember five minutes ago, I just got up and walked out. I just could not handle it. It was just like, but it's not meant to happen. And then, of course, there was the Rafe Rovers final, which was an absolute debacle, where we somehow managed to lose on penalties to a first division club. And yet 90s later, we were doing it at Anfield, losing 6-0 and Ian Rush Testimonial. And it was very difficult, I think, for Fergus um, to, you know, people just wanted him to spend money, get good players, win the league. But of course, it was a lot more than that. And I think he made an enormous error in January '95 where he launched the, in brackets, boys against bigotry, Camden Pain. And I, I was so angry by this. Now, again, it goes back to my outlier militant stuff, beliefs I had then that I still have now, people, they weren't the norm and all that kind of stuff. But I was saying recently, I said, you know, these things evolve all the time. Now, as far as I'm concerned, we lived in a country that did not welcome us, you know. We faced discrimination and racism on a daily basis. We were in the face of a rival who had a policy apartheid for just under a hundred years. Why on earth are we now being persecuted for the songs that we sing? And I says, I say the date debate evolves, I said to somebody at Celtic last week, see if you had this debate now, you wouldn't have a leg to stand on And they looked at me like, How do you mean? I said In the context of what we know now, who did men, torture, waterboarding, innocent people being slaughtered, and you ought a fucking Harass me for singing a song, forget it. So that was a mistake and it alienated a lot of people. Um, and then you were getting wee tidbits about the infighting with Tommy Burns. And of course, Tommy just wanted for the best for the club. And I remember an employee telling me a story when we signed Alan Stubbs. And Tommy said, Have look, who's was in the boardroom. He said, oh Christ, I mean it's Alan Stubbs. He says, we're, we're on our way back, blah, blah, blah then Fergus come on and said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm just showing, you know, I'll not name his name, uh, employee of the club, the new signing. I don't know how you do that, we need to speak to the press first. No, that's kind of like, what the fuck? It's just a sales supporter, what to see, a new player? You know, and um, so there was always that and it kind of, I think was exacerbated by the hiring of Jock Brown, um, who was a disaster. Absolute disaster You know I know he wrote a book And all this kind of stuff And Just the way he was always Trying to spin things And the lawyer speak And all that kind of thing But there was a deep distrust Of people like him um, By the fans But Ultimately The the foundations Were now being put in place To challenge for the league And we challenged for the league You know 95, 96 96, 97 and then, of course, won it in ninety-seven, ninety-eight. Whatever anybody sees about Fergus, that was doing to him.
5: McCann has been speaking exclusively to Extra Time about reaching the halfway stage of his five-year tenure at Parkhead. It was March 1994 when McCann arrived to save the club from bankruptcy. He's since overseen a public share issue which has led to Celtic being valued at an incredible 120 million pounds. Second only to Manchester United in Britain, Jim Delahunt's been hearing McCann's own halftime verdict.
3: The game, the game is over. The rebels have won.
5: This was the moment when Celtic fans realised that Fergus McCann had saved the club from going out of business. McCann didn't hang about in getting things done.
6: In fact, from June 14th, I gave notice to Mr. Luigi Macari that he had failed to meet important obligations under his contract of employment.
5: And that he was dismissed from his position as manager of the club. The new owner then sounded out various people about who should take over. The consensus was that former player Tommy Burns would grow into the job after cutting his managerial teeth at Kilmarnock. The pair have had their differences, but Celtic now looks to be back in business with McCann's own expertise ensuring that Burns has the funds to buy the best players available.
6: Our name is strong, but our record in the last few years isn't, isn't supporting that at this point, so we really have to turn that around. And it's great to have all these nationalities uh, of players here. I think it adds a great deal of flavour to the game in Scotland, and I think it. Uh, people criticise the fact we've got you know, overseas players, but I think... Uh, The Punter wants to see the best on the field, and if he's a Scottish player or if he's not a Scottish player, well, that's well and good. He just wants to see the team do well and play attractive football, so that's up to us to deliver that.
5: On Tuesday night, Celtic fans get another taste of big-time European football, a flavour which older generations became used to on a regular basis. Domestic success remains the first objective, but the managing director knows that Europe is the big stage which Celtic fans want the team to be performing on
6: absolutely and i think we're looking forward to this game against hamburg on tuesday uh, it's a big event for us we want to keep moving forward in europe uh big hurdle to get over and i think our team is up to it so i think we've it's it's, it's not an easy business as you know football is very unpredictable uh, you just do the best you can i think what i'm very happy about the thing i've got the greatest satisfaction about here is we've got an excellent group of people running the club uh, from the football side to the administrative side the commercial side Uh, financial people, uh, marketing people we've got a very good team here
5: McCann Celtic is now a massive operation with 40,000 season ticket holders to be serviced before anyone else can get a look in the business is booming but McCann knows success on the field has to be the ultimate objective.
6: I think we're going reasonably well according to plan we'd we'd like to uh, naturally get some trophies back into Celtic Park Uh, we have invested heavily in players we've uh, invested heavily in the park I think our supporters have, have invested heavily in us, and I think that, uh, so it's, it's very much a giant family, and uh, as a group, uh, we're having an annual meeting on Monday, for example, when we talk to our shareholders and report to them on the last year, and I think we'll have a good report to give.
7: The Fergus McCann takeover So I'm going to try and recall some memories Around the time of, of the takeover um, And then maybe talk about a few things While, while Fergus was, was there um, You know, the first thing that comes to mind When I think about Fergus McCann And I'm not sure if others will f- think about this But my abiding memory was the personal letter he wrote to all the Celtic fans put under their seats when we played Rangers at Celtic Park. I can't remember, maybe in a New Year's game or something. Asking them, playing with them, um, if I remember really to stop singing pro-Irish-Republican um, Army chance, um, which was, you know, um, um, I had a bit. it was a, it was a brave thing to do, um, that's that's for sure. Um, just given the, the roots of the club and, and you know, um, it was a, it was a, it was a brave thing to do. There's just, there's just. No doubt about, it. and you know only Fergus uh, could uh, could have attempted that. And it was interesting because you know I think about about EZ, that's Kind of like people, while really he was there, it was kind of like divided, and some people were happy, some people weren't happy. And I think afterwards, now I don't think I speak to anybody now uh, in this day and age who. I actually have a bad word to say about him now Maybe I'm wrong, maybe I just don't speak to many people But um, You know, he's looked at now as a a Club legend, a saviour And particularly Particularly given What happened to Rangers The Rangers um, You know, many years later I think Maybe people realise that You know after the fact He was doing the right thing But um, Controversial character For sure I think uh, Back to the actual Takeover time itself I was in uh, I was living in Dundee At the time And You know I, would, I was still going to Still going to Some of the Some of the games I'm going to quite a lot of the games As I made my way down You know Celtic Park, And then Games that were close to Dundee Whatever I went And It was like a terrible time The Celtics have got right? we were just Ryan rotten quite frankly and, um, it was a horrible time for the club and seeing players like Paul McStay Celtic daft Celtic to the core players like him having to carry the team carry the weight of the world on his shoulders it was just just terrible you know we just were getting beat off teams regularly that we shouldn't have got get beat off and I can't remember I remember it was was it and now it just come to my mind now was, there was a time where I, I think I remember a back page headline or something like St Johnston had with no disrespect to St Johnston Football Club St Johnston were able to pay more money for a player than we could afford or something it was just it was just absolutely terrible Another um, another thing I remember as well like you know my grandpa actually he Went home and away every game still then you know he just like every game and um, you know he used to phone a lot and it was just you know it was depressing at the time um, just terrible you know he would he'd lose the plot and he'd start taking it out of me it was all my bloody fault that we were getting beat nothing to do with the fact that the way the club was running it was my fault because I didn't go to the game the night before or whatever night so um, <laughs> my grandpa really struggled and we all we all struggled and then if I think back to the scenes um, you know outside the ground as he took over and they were Brian Dempsey being there there was Matt, Matt McGlone there I can't remember but I remember the you know, it was like, wet outside, or, uh, I'm trying to remember the, you know, the, the occasion, kind of, you know, on the television, and the news, and, the Rebels have won, and whatever else, right, um, I think we were just delighted, that our club had been saved, we were safe, we did not know, what lay in store, but again, um, you know, what he did was incredible, um, a couple other things that I remember kind of during his tenure you know again back to the being controversial I think people just expected with him to come in that we'd be spending money and rivaling Rangers in the in the transfer market and he he wasn't he wasn't for that you know and he wasn't he wasn't um, about just kind of throwing money at and maybe people thought that would be the case and, and it wasn't they started to get frustrated with him um, and then there was Tommy Burns, obviously, the fastest good Celtic man, and put a great team out there. And, and, and Tommy getting getting dismissed was was a tough one for the fans to take, and Wim and, and Jansen took the blame for that. And, and then, you know, obviously, um, the Jock Brown situation. So he hires Jock. Jock Brow the <laughs> general manager, whatever it was almost like like Ronald Reagan or, or Donald Trump becoming the president of the USA. Like how does, you know, how does a a commentator, um how does a, a former commentator, albeit Your Jock was a was a lawyer by trade as well, how does he become the, the general manager of, of Celtic? I think the I think a lot of fans struggle with that and it just seemed to be a bit of a joke at the time. I remember hearing a funny story actually about Joe Brown and um sitting down and, and you know, with the Celtic coach and stuff. I think Andy Ritchie was this kinda of Celtic man, but Morton legend. He was in the coaching stuff and um, and I remember a story that that Joel Brown was telling him all, it's just look, you know, being commentating watching European football, Scottish football, British football, whatever, for 15, 20 years now, you know, I've been here, there, everywhere, you know, so I kind of know, I know what I'm talking about when it comes to football, apparently Andy Ritchie, Andy Ritchie turned around something like and says, uh, he says, aye, that's very good joke, he says, I've been watching Perry Como for 30 years, doesn't mean to say I'm a good lawyer. It was I thought it was a cracking story. I don't know if that's true or not, but anyway Jock was um, was a bit kinda of and obviously Celtic fans, you know, lay his appointment, his unpopularity at the door of Fergus McCann and a lot of people thought that he'd been put in there to take the flak away from McCann, right? So he got on with the job and, and not take the personal abuse. But again, that was another controversial um decision. And I guess the last thing I, I, I remember is it's so a thing, yo. Know, as a Celtic supporter. You know, it was like one step forward, five days back, and of course, Fergus delivered on his promise of us winning the league and not just winning the league, but stopping ten in a row, right? Um, or been been part of stopping ten in a row, and it was it was such a huge moment for the club, the relief, the pride we have, we had in that that records. Um, was really important to the club and, and, and winning that season against all odds again it always seems to happen doesn't it Rangers had spent Rangers were nine in their own I and mean, spent millions in the transfer market um, that summer and obviously um, didn't spend wisely and we did you know bringing in players like, like um, Henrik Larson um, you know Mark Reaper uh, Kate Burley players like that ready right, to supplement the 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 team and uh, and we won it but of course the five step backwards which which we thought at the time was Vim Jansen leaving the day after we won the league and a lot of people put that down to Fergus as well and and whatever else but you know mixed (coughs) mixed views at the time I think Um, I can't even remember to be honest what my opinion was at the time Um, I I think I do remember being frustrated that not not splashing the cash and you know, going the extra mile to get David Ginola whether he wanted to come or not it's another story anyway but um, and I remember being frustrated but at the same time you know thinking we're, we're making progress here and we're getting better but I tell you what now again given the context of what happened to um, um, our former rivals um, over the last 10 years um, I don't think And actually, sorry, even to this day, the way Celtic's run as a business now, um, you know, you've got to go back to to Fergus McCann and how he set set the precedent, um, um, which has been financially astute. And the guy left um, a huge legacy, and I think I've said this in a few podcasts before, but my generation, the generations before, will appreciate it. Because we lived through it, it's maybe more, more difficult trying to explain it. Well, um, people have just started following us in, in recent years, but absolutely saved the club.
1: Aye, I heard that. I know. He made it. See Perry Mason, no Perry Como, the silly bastard.
6: to be here in Celtic Park with you
3: and things can go up and
6: things can go down but Celtic I will hope will go on forever we have three years of championships to celebrate today not just one and I'm a delighted to be here with Mr Chairman of the club, Ian Bank here, and with all of you today to help raise this flag and tell us once again that we are the champions.
0: OK, so once again, let's hear it
1: Celtic had been a basket case for years. We can't ever get over that and Fergus McCann was the guy who put his money where his mouth is and showed pictures of the stadium we would build which is what he did said we would win the league within his tenure and then said he'd leave within five years which he did and he left after a Dundee game uh, at Sally Park won 5-0 in uh, April 1999 and uh, so did I because I was going to Belfast for the Easter celebrations and meet my mate at Glasgow Airport And there was Fergus in Glasgow Airport. And I managed to, the only time I ever met him, and shook his hand, I just said, thanks. And in typical Fergus fashion, he said, what for? (laughs) He was a man that definitely divided opinion. Um, He had some bizarre uh, traits about him that um, ultimately um, would make him what you would describe as an eccentric John Paul Taylor for the ticket office told me once when um, they were in, Celtic were playing Wraith Rovers at Starts Park, but they were in the ticket office having to do the tickets for a Celtic PSG game. And they were in there all day, you know, because the facilities were you know, still building up, etc. And the team bus comes back for Starts Park, you know, half six or whatever, and they, John Paul's just looking the door. The ticket office coming out, and he sees Fergus and Fergus sees him, and Fergus comes bounding over. and He's like, Oh, how are you doing? How? He says, Did you get all the tickets? So, aye, aye, we've got them. It's fine, it's done. Oh, brilliant, that's fantastic. He says, You must be starving. John Paul's thinking, Oh my god, Fergus has got to take me for a meal, eh? And uh, he said, aye, 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 I am actually. And he's like, Ah, here. Goes into his pocket takes two pies out, hands one to John Paul and says, I picked him up in the Rafe Rovers boardroom, you have one for your tea, son, and just walked away. Um, another one I heard was when um, he left the building late one Friday night, pouring rain, went out and the staffer watched him to go to his car and uh, he came back and just walked in and he said, oh, I forgot, he says, my car was stolen this morning. Inform me, a taxi, please. Um, and then a, a priest once told me that um, when Fergus used to start coming to chapel on a Sunday when he moved here, he says, uh, You know, at the end of it, and he, says, he says, Fergus, can I have a word? Of you? He says, What is it? He says, We're doing a raffle here at Christmas. Could you donate a couple of tickets? And uh, <laughs> Fergus says, Look, I'm here to worship, not talk about tickets. You know, but that was him. But ultimately, and this can never be forgotten, he had Murray's number. Right, never forget that. Brian Conn would tell a great story about bringing in guys like Brian Quinn, and I suppose he also brought in Dermot Desmond's, unfortunately. But he was bringing in people, Patrick Sheehy, and that who were solid financial business people who ran everything by the book. And kind of knew how to attract money and etc. cetera. Whereas Murray, of course, was just a fucking dictatorship. One man, what I say goes piggy banks at the Bank in Scotland and uh, Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, an ex- inexhaustible overdraft, and eventually an EBT scheme. So Fergus had sussed that out, and by the time Fergus left, we had a 60,000 seater stadium, which is why Murray pushed through the EBT scheme for the whole staff, because he knew his main rival had 10,000 mere people coming through the gates every week, and that was something he could not compete with. So that's a legacy that Fergus leaves, 100%. Um, and the foundations for the club is why we can honestly say that we've went for immigration to domination.
8: Let me show you what I mean The Messiah is my sister Ain't no king, man, she's my queen Let me put you in the picture Let me show you what I mean The Messiah is my sister Ain't no king, man, she's my queen Let me put you in the picture Let me show you what I mean The Messiah is my sister Ain't no king, man, she's my queen